What's up, Juan? How you doing? I'm doing great. How about you, Joe? I'm doing okay. Uh, <laughs> you were talking to me before. Yeah, it's, I think I'm operating about three hours of sleep right now because of the uh, jet lag, but um, should make for a fun interview. So, <laughs> yeah, the, the, When you're on little sleep, it's when you get to try to focus or, or you get to figure out where, you, where you're going to put your focus on. So we'll, right. we'll see where your mind is at right now too. It's 100% on you right now. So that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, so we've done, I don't even know how many shows we've done together, uh, but a few. We've done, yeah, we, we, we've done a handful. And um, anyways, it's always a pleasure to chat with you. And Likewise. I think uh, the, 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 we, we've been at this for a while here on this uh, podcast LinkedIn thing. Um, yeah. And it's always, it's, it's interesting to see how this has been evolving. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, walk me through that. You got, you got started in podcasting how long ago? All right, let's talk about podcasting first. Because as you, as you, so just to let people know, it's like we haven't prepared anything. I think we're just, we're just going with the flow. <laughs> no, <that's, yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah. So um, we started 20, so p- pandemic 2020. We started, uh, I think the first episode was in May, May 2020. And it was, uh, everybody's doing webinars. We're like, well, let's do like a not a boring thing, a fun happy hour drink. Everybody's drinking some of the time, mm. and uh, and then I want to do something with wine. I remember, but then I got some email saying there's a wine webinar. I think ah crap, I don't want to use wine in this. And then yeah, let's do something with cocktails. And then catalog came up, and then that's how it all started. So we started that in May. And over four years now. It's pretty crazy. It's crazy. Yeah, I've often wondered where you got the name from. I never actually asked you where you got uh, catalogs and cocktails from. So that's a good. Uh, so we wanted to do something. We, we, we wanted to do something with cocktails. Yeah. And then we said C. And I think somebody said, well, C and C sounds good. And then I'm like, well, we're a data catalog company. So catalog. And that's it. That literally was it. <laughs> I wear it doesn't make any sense in a way. No, it doesn't at all. I wear, I wear your shirt, the uh, catalogs and cocktails shirt. And people are like, what is that exactly? And I'm like, You'll just have to listen. It'll make sense. When- honest, <laughs> honest, no BS. I think not, no now it should be called like the, the honest, no BS data podcast or whatever. But I like that it's called Catalan Cogbill. It, it, it has a, a brand in a way. Yeah, different. How did you go about sourcing your guests early on? We didn't have any. So for oh, the okay. first six months, we had no guests. It was just Tim Gasper, myself, just chatting for, for half an, it was for half an hour. And actually, we, we originally did things on Zoom. So we actually had a Zoom invite. People would get a Zoom. And people would join. We would record. People were off camera. They were really respected, respectful. Um, and then we would stop at 30 minutes. And then we would just kind of have like the – everybody would turn the camera on and just keep chatting for another 30 minutes. That was like the first six months. And then we did have a couple of guests come up. I, I don't even remember how they came up, like how we invited them. Actually, some of them were our colleagues at Data.World and because, hey, here's a good topic. Hey, you, you're, you're a cool guy. You, t- you can talk about this stuff. Um, and then when we, when we looked at the numbers, we saw like, oh, guests, I mean, episode that had guests actually had more listeners. I was like, well, that's probably an indicator. So the next, se- the next season, what we tried is like, well, let's add guests. And then, um, and then we just started kind of from there growing. I think actually also because everybody was doing live of uh, these online events and online, online conferences and all these Slack communities started up. So then I was yeah. like reaching out to people saying, Hey, you want to be part of this thing. And I think the, the other thing which makes it easy is that we just always, we've always done it live Wednesdays at 4 PM central. And then, so that, that's your time. It's been easy to, yeah. Otherwise trying to find time now is impossible. Yeah. It's almost like you got to put your stake in the ground in a certain uh, time during the week. So you're doing Wednesdays at four and, 
Monday morning data chats, you know, Monday morning, obviously. And I think people, mm -hmm. people tend to be respectful of those uh, boundaries too, but yep. you, know, you build up an audience, I guess it doesn't really matter at a certain point either. Cause it's just, you show up, do your thing. And if people want to listen, terrific. If not, catch exactly. you later. And this is, it, it is, this is the other thing is that like for our podcast, and I think the same thing for you is like, we're just generally, we're having genuine conversations with yeah. folks, honest, no BS style. And, and we don't use this for marketing. Like, yeah, this is sponsored by by Data World, and we say thank you, Data World, that lets us do this. Mm -hmm. But we're not using this for leads or anything. So, I mean, actually, we don't even talk about data catalogs, or we barely even bring them up. Or yeah, whatever. we're not selling at all, right? So other companies have their podcasts, like perfect, fine, and they use it for lead generation. Perfect, that's fine. That's not what we're doing here. Mm -hmm. We're just honest, no BS, and on sales. That's really cool. The the company is uh, you know is, is cool with that, right? Because things. Other companies would say, "Well, you have to use this as a, a opportunity to, you know, uh, promote us at every every turn." So, so, so no, speaks volumes. You know, yeah, you have, so you have like full editorial control over everything. Yeah, I mean, we just but, like who, and Tim and myself are like, okay, what do we want to go focus on? Like, and we actually are looking at our guests, looking at our topics, and want diversity of topics, diversity of people, and like, and that's really. It's really hard to go do today because I mean, everybody wants to talk about AI, we want to, which we want to yeah. talk about. But then also, like, I get all these emails getting re folks want to go talk, and the honest, no BS thing here, I'm putting it out there. Yeah, I, I could fill the schedule for the next six months with a bunch of just dudes, right? All right, you got to balance some stuff too, right? So, yeah. so that, that, so yeah, those are the, that, that Tim and myself, we just kind of do figure out. Uh, the, the, the editorial aspects here. Yeah. And that's interesting. I mean, you bring up a good point, right? AI is like, that's all people want to seem to talk about anymore. I mean, how do you, how do you balance that as a, as a host? Um, you know, there's other things in the data world we can talk about too, besides AI, but it seems to be the elephant in the room, so to speak. Well, I, I, I think a lot of people we are talking to, AI is not just the focus, so it's, it's yeah. data and the AI comes in. Like what we've been doing lately is uh, in our podcast, we're having the, the AI minute, so we mm. let people just go rant for one minute about AI, and I, and it's I think it's it, it's very the 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 messages that we're seeing. If I would kind of generalize a little bit, is AI like yeah, pay attention to it, like like you got to pay attention to it. And second, it's people are all agreeing. Like you need to have the data. The data is the data is a core part of AI. If you're not focused on the data on, on having clean semantics and clean and understandable data, then you're not going to do well with AI. But I think the, the, a lot of the data folks that we talk to, I think the, the separation when it comes from like AI and, and data is that all the, a lot of the those large language models, all this AI stuff is, is a lot about unstructured data, right? So it's text mm -hmm. and, and, and images and, and and kind of in our data world, we're not the data folks that we talk to are more on the structured are on the structured side. We're literally it's SQL databases, so that's kind of like a, a, a bit of a disconnect. When you, you you see like everybody's talking about chats and doing uh, uh, vector databases, embeddings, and all that stuff, like but they're not talking about how to go do that with SQL databases. Uh, it's all those conversations are about on the unstructured side, and I think that's a a, a gap that we're seeing and, and that needs to be filled because. Yeah, we do need to figure out how to go really combine all these mm -hmm. AI systems, these large language models with structured relational databases and SQL and stuff. So that's a lot of the work that I've been doing now. So. Yeah, yeah. Tell me more about that. We were talking about uh, before we started recording about some of the work you're working on now, but it's it sounds interesting. So, so, so if we look at 
if we look at the large, I mean, AI, large language model, like big boom at the beginning of twenty of this year, twenty twenty three. Now you start going into all these all the conferences, uh, like, like after Snowflake and Databricks, and everybody's combining the large language models with the structured data. These companies like Snowflake, they're saying, oh, we want to go chat with the data, right? Have have these chatbots. Now the chatbots have been have been out there already for the unstructured side, but for the structured side, it hasn't been. Like people are starting to go talk about this, and then you see all the demos of everybody saying, "Hey, let's go chat with the data," and it's and then the LM is turning things into SQL, and like everybody's like, "Well, yeah, I get that. It's a cute, cute question, easy question on this very simple data on this uh, one or two tables, but that's not how the enterprise world works, right?" So, but so you're seeing all these demos and excitements about chatting, about calling chat with the data. By the way, this is like a long-standing area in computer science question answering and people have been working on this for decades right and i think just the large language models have now accelerated it but then there's like oh yeah we can use large language models over sql because it'll generate sql i'm like in theory yes but let's go figure out how well does this work and i think nobody's actually been asking that we're seeing companies startups already doing this and they're training these large language models and, and then there's all these existing benchmarks yeah benchmarks there's like the, the most common benchmark around this is a system called spider from the folks at yale they actually came up with this like four or five years ago um and when you look at it it's yeah there's a, the, a lot of people have been focusing on this benchmark but it's really disconnected from the enterprise settings so it's like all these little benchmarks are like a couple of tables and all these questions are kind of pretty even though they kind of make the questions a little bit harder but the, the questions get harder just from a technical perspective more joins or applications so what, what 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 I've been asking myself is like okay let's really understand to what extent these large language models can actually accurately answer these natural language questions and translate it to SQL but within the enterprise context. So we've actually been looking at uh, there's open domain models. So OMG, a standards organization, has some stuff from uh, in the insurance space. A very well defined insurance data model has like 200 tables. Like that's something you have, and then you look at the types of questions you want to ask him. Mm. So you have like the spectrum of questions of like here, quote unquote, the easy questions, which are like reporting. Oh, how many call? How many? Show me the list of all the the claims we have, or how many claims do we have by this? And then you start getting more progressively more complicated on the questions, getting into metrics, getting to KPIs, getting into the questions that the leaders are asking on how to make money, how to save money, how to mitigate risk. Yeah. <laughs> so, Get into, get into that. Sorry. So I think that is that that spectrum of questions to go do that we need to have. Um, so that's kind of what I'm. That's this benchmark that we're working on uh, is is understanding the enterprise context, database schemas, questions, and then the second thing is look the these there's there lacks context right all this metadata that provides the context this is this is what should be represented in the knowledge graph i mean this is why you have data catalogs and metadata management systems how much does a knowledge graph actually improve the accuracy of these large language model systems that are translating to sql my hypothesis is that it will increase it a lot i just don't know how much so Part so part of the benchmark is that you, is that we're giving that knowledge graph with all that context to really understand how much does the accuracy improve because you have a knowledge graph. My hypothesis is that when you have knowledge graphs, all the context that context layer with it, your accuracy of your of, of answering questions in natural language is going to be much higher as if you don't have it. Uh, and then we'll, we'll we're going to go see the, pro, the the progression based on how complex those questions are. Yeah, hey, I just ranted a lot. No, it's really interesting. So, 
are, are you finding that I, I guess where would where where in that sequence is a knowledge graph introduced? Is it, is it before training a large language model? Is it uh, large language models trained then you do the knowledge graph after? Or what's, so, what's a, good, good question. At this moment, like the, the benchmark is defined as the input is a question okay. and the output is an, is an answer, right? So you, you have a system that takes its input question, provides an, input, uh, an output, an answer. How did you do this? I honestly don't care. Right, okay. you could have generated one SQL query all through prompt engineering, zero prompts, three sure prompts. You can do fine tune. Like I don't care how you want to go do that. I just want to have a have the benchmark saying here's the questions, here here here's a schema, mm-hmm. here are the questions, here's the data that comes with it, here are the answers, and here's that knowledge graph. You decide if you use it or not. So right. if you don't use it, if, so if you don't use it, you're going to get some accuracy, and if you do use it, you'll get some accuracy. Mm. And my hypothesis is that the systems are going to go use accuracy, use the the context as the knowledge graph are going to get higher. That, that that's 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 my hypothesis, and let's go figure it out. And I think, by the way, everything I'm saying, like we're working on this right now, we're gonna we're, we're getting a bunch of feedback from folks, and we're gonna go yeah. release some open source it because this should be like a community thing. And, and at the end of the day, this is like not a. I mean, benchmarks are, are benchmarks are great for. For, comp- for comparing and that generates competition and competition generates innovation. But in reality, I see this more as like the community versus the hype. Yeah. There's so much hype right now. I think we need to be able to figure out a way to navigate and understand this hype. Uh, that's, that's the honest no BS. Like the, there's so much BS in all this hype. Let's go figure out where is the honest stuff that's working and yeah. let's figure out where things are not working and then actually know how to go pave like a roadmap of how to go improve things. Oh, yeah, especially the the efforts on enterprise um, like structured data, right? So the, the question I've been asking uh, the audience in my talks on data modeling is, um, would you be willing to bet your job on throwing a large language model on top of your corporate data set as it stands today? Exactly. That's exactly my point. So, so, so again, let's. I'm loosely kind of using knowledge graph, context, yeah. modeling, semantic layer, transform. Like this all fits that bucket of, of what yeah. I'm just going to call it knowledge knowledge right yep. so it's like and, and and it's explicit knowledge you and it's 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 in code it's codified right so uh if you don't have that written down somewhere like you think what it's just going to go work with these large, i mean that, that's literally what we're testing here mm-hmm. i think a lot of people will say no just 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 give me i can train more things right uh i need more i just what i really need is more SQL queries with with natural language and SQL queries. Give me a bunch of that stuff, and I can go train. Like, all right, let's go test that. Mm-hmm. Well, this, this is this is where we need to go. Uh, really push. Yeah, push I, the barrier. I totally agree. Yeah, it's something I've been thinking about a lot too. It's, uh, I mean, as I always say too, it, it's funny because I think we're, we're still struggling to get BI right in a lot of companies, and we want to throw a, uh, um, you know, this new stuff on top of it. Right, so it's uh, so maybe so, maybe, it, maybe, so it'll, he, maybe it'll be, be a huge improvement. I have no idea. I mean, this well, well, I, 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 I only, I think part of it also is is to look at the the spectrum, what I call the spectrum of complexity of questions. Mm-hmm. So, so be, all these BI tools, right? Tableau and ThoughtSpot, they all have these natural language interfaces over that. But the question is, like, what are the types of questions people are asking? And if you, and, and I, the way I. I I put this. I put this in, in a quadrant. I say there's a complexity of questions where easier questions are more of these like just lists and reports, and more complex questions are things that have metrics and and KPIs. And then there's another spectrum of complexity of let's call it schema complexity. How much of the database do I need to go answer this question? 
So do I need a little, a smaller part of the schema, which means a lower complexity, or need more parts of the schema, more tables, higher complexity? So if you put those two quadrants, if you put those two, those kind of two spectrums together, you get a quadrant. Low complexity of questions and low complexity of schemas. How many clients do I have? I have a table called clients. It's select, count from, right? That's a very simple thing. Then you can, in, you can increase the complexity of in the complexity of the of this of uh, the schema or the que- of, of the SQL, but still have um, low complex of a question. So it's like, oh, here's this easy question, but to answer this easy question, I need to join six, seven, eight, ten tables because that's how the database is highly normalized or whatever, right? So I need to know how to go join all this stuff. Then you can also have more of an easier schema to go answer, but more complex questions. So, oh, here's a question that involves doing aggregations and math and functions over one table or two tables, right? And then you start increasing. I have really complex questions. I need to do that involve aggregations, math, functions, all that stuff over a lot of highly complexity of the schema. I need 15 tables to be answered that stuff. So, so you see this quadrants. So the hypothesis here is that for easy questions on easy schemas, yeah, the large language models without any context will work. Like if, if that's all you care about, then probably don't invest in, in putting all that context. Right. If, if, if would I bet my life, well, not my life, but would I bet a lot of money on saying for these types of questions on this one table, will it work? Yeah, I will bet on that. But the moment you start increasing the complexity of the questions and increasing the complexity of your data, then that's where the context is going to be. Now, the other thing is that you can say, well, maybe I'll just start normalizing or denormalizing my data, have a wider table. I'm like, mm-hmm. well, guess what? The process of denormalizing, like that's where you're actually embedding the knowledge, the semantics mm-hmm. of that stuff in that process. So you are already investing in that context right there, but make that explicit so it can be used for other things, not just for that one denormalization stuff that you're doing. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. It reminds me of back in the day I was doing, uh, I was working at a few auto ML, um, companies and, uh, it, it, one of them was trying to, uh, one of them focused really heavily on, uh, business intelligence data. And it was funny cause I, I think every single time I would go into a, uh, data warehouse, right. The answer was already there because <laughs> you've already thought through the answer. So it's like, uh, I want to be able to predict, uh, returns of product. Like that's literally like the flag that says returns in your database there. So I don't think you need to predict anything, you know, because BI is definitely more kind of um, backwards looking, right? It's not, it's not meant for um, predictive type stuff, but I think what you're hitting on is, is definitely a different type of interface where you're, you're, you're using natural language to search for, for answers. Right. And it's, um, it's a bit of a different and, and, problem. And I, and, and I, and I, and I think that there, uh, there's a, a type of questions which call, let's call it the easy questions, that that stuff is going to just work fine in these chat mm-hmm. interfaces. And, and, and effectively, it's just quick answers. I mean, this is a lot of the ad hoc stuff. And what I imagine, imagine I imagine a system that will say, somebody asks a question and you get the answer back and you get back, the exp- people can get the explainability, right? They, they understand where this answer comes from. But, and that's the other part. I think a lot of the, 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 the explanation part, people are just kind of, oh, yes, explainable AI. But they're like, well, how does this actually look like here? Because you also need to understand who is a user. 
who is the user you provide an explanation you're providing an explanation to what user is it a a, a, a business user non-technical wants a different type of explanation than a than a very technical user right so understanding that the persona is uh, for, for the explanations uh, so one thing is the accuracy of the results but another thing is the is the uh, explanation of how these results come here and I truly believe this is again another hypothesis is that the context the knowledge graph all this knowledge part is critical to provide explanation with higher user satisfaction uh, uh, because otherwise you're like explain where this answer comes from well you're joining this table with this table this table right. this table like well maybe that for a data engineer is probably valuable but but they're actually want they'll want the English description they will probably want to see a lineage graph and for the business user they're like what the fuck are you talking about I don't know what this stuff is right and at the end you really want to go say is like you should probably go talk to Joe like, here's how we calculate this answer, but go talk to Joe to give you more context. Um, and another thing is that, you, that, that, I, that I expect kind of systems to go do, like the vision here is to say, here is an answer and here's why this is the answer. Or you ask this question, I can't answer this question because you're asking something that I don't know about. Mm. Because the context, the knowledge graph will say, here's what I know. And if it doesn't fit into this knowledge graph, it means I don't know it. So then at that point, you can say, I can't answer that question for this because this is missing. And then later on, you start connecting the people to everything. You're like, and this is probably the person you should go talk to because they should probably have that. So at that point, you're like, these easy questions can be answered. And then you start finding what I'm calling like this tipping point where like, okay, here are questions that you can't, like, I, I can't certainly answer them. I'd rather not answer them and give you more hints on how you could answer them by talking to the people. And then that stuff you would go use on 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 your bi tools i think these chat interfaces are going to be kind of all over it's just gonna become a, a feature yeah i think so i mean it's gotta be a lot of fun for you right because i know that you've been involved with like the semantic web and and knowledge graphs for i don't even know how long over 15 years maybe or longer than that 15 I mean, 15 years 15 yeah years probably, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a long time to spend thinking about this problem um I mean, are you having fun with this? This is my career. This is my livelihood. I, I, I will, I will die on this hill. I genuinely believe that this is the right thing to go do, of how to manage, how to manage stuff, how to manage your data and your knowledge. I mean, th th this is the web. I mean, this, like, I'm going to take a fortune here and rank a little bit. How? No, please do. Uh, so, so you you think about so Tim Berners Lee comes up with the notion of the web by just combining the existing technologies, right? Take hypertext has existed, right? So he takes takes hypertext, right? Uh, uh, and then comes up with these standards, these protocols for HTTP with HTML, comes up with the first browser. And and if you actually read his, his, his uh, the vague but exciting proposal it presents, it's about really connecting things together. Now, the way those things are represented are as documents. And these documents... That's, that's the web where you, you go to a page, an HTML page, and you click on something and you go. And that page is technically supposed to represent a, a, a thing. And this, in the, for his perspective, right, he was at CERN. These things were experiments and stuff we were doing, right? This was a person, right? It's very, like the first web pages were about people and their universities and all this stuff we were doing, right? So that's, so it's all about connecting stuff. Now the web explodes. And I also believe that the generative AI and the large language model kind of world that we're living in right now is a web moment. Like my other pet peeve is it's the web, not the internet. You're, when you use the word internet, right. you probably mean the word web. 
Two different things. Tim Berners-Lee is the inventor of the web. When you go in, type www.http, that's the web. The internet is all the plumbing, the protocol underneath around that. Vint Cerf is the father of the internet. Then you have like folks like Bob Metcalf comes with Ethernet, which are used for all these things, right? So, but you're really talking about the web. That's my big pet peeve. So when you look at the web, so by, by the way, the large language models, they really crawled all the web, all the web pages, all that stuff, not the internet, the web. Uh, so they know, but they don't know. They've actually crawled all this, all this unstructured text uh, that's on the web. So it's all about following links. Now, what happened is that the big boom explosion of the web was e-commerce. And then everything, everybody starts putting more documents to the web. Uh, now, Tim has a very famous talk, I think it's in 94 or 95 around, where he basically says, the true vision of the web that I wanted kind of got screwed up uh, mm. because what I wanted was a semantic web, was a web where all the links and all the things actually have meaning. So every identifier, which is a, UR, a URL, URL is a locator, but URI is the identifier. This is an identifier for a thing, and, a, and that thing is linked to another thing, and that's the graph, right? That's the, what we call the triple. Um, so from there, he's really been pushing, saying the web originally was supposed to be about things and not just about documents, but it just exploded, and, and people started creating more documents and then ads and all that stuff, and then Google comes in and does the search engines, and people are now searching for, for find just better ways to find the search engine finding better documents. That's how they're, they're using search engines at the beginning, the late of the 90s. So the semantic web has always been about how do I extract and make the things more explicit. Now, kind of jumping to, to, to 2010s, Google, when they, they come out with the term, the knowledge graph, which basically is taking the whole semantic web and actually have great marketing. I think knowledge graph is a better term. And their, and their phrase is things, not strings. And that's mm-hmm. it. Like, I don't, I don't, my example has always been like, I'm searching for Paris Hilton. Do you mean the person Paris Hilton or do you mean the hotel Hilton in the city Paris and which city Paris and so forth? So now that string actually means things and you start connecting all this stuff together. So the web is this information space that the largest information space that mankind has ever created. And what's beautiful about it is that it's completely federated. There's no central control for the web. I can create a web page. I can link to my, my page can link to your, your web page, Joe. I have no control of your web page, but I can still link to it. A user, an agent, a machine can go to, it can follow those links and they start traversing. So you just basically have this gigantic global graph database that I can have uh, that anybody can, that anything can go traverse. And that's how crawling works. This is like thinking I can go create a foreign key from my database that points to your database and I have no control of your database, but I can still point to it. And then a system machine can go traverse that link, that, that edge and go keep, keep navigating. That's how we start connect, connecting everything together. So you really are creating this global space of information, integrated information. So the idea is like, I should be able to bring that within an enterprise an organization. I have, I bring up now. Bring up data mesh. I have this domain, my domain. Like, yeah, my domain. I can create my things, and I can link to your domain. You're my domain. Maybe we want to go partner together. We can go do these things, and then we create kind of a shared vocabulary. How to go talk about this stuff? By the way, I think Google, Yahoo, Bing, like all these folks, like in, in, in mid two thousands, two thousand tens, they created on a whole schema, an ontology called schema.org, 
works is they've agreed upon, hey, it's probably good that we come up with good ways of how to define these, defining this, the, the vocabulary. And they've been able to go do this even in a decentralized in a community way. Um, now, I think over half of the web page has all this semantic mark- markup, which is all this knowledge graph that's embedded. And that's actually how large language models actually know RDF knowledge graphs very well, because when they've crawled the web, they've actually seen all this stuff in there. Half, the, half of the stuff that they've, you know, that they've crawled, that they've trained on, has RDF knowledge graphs in it. That's why they know this very, very well. Anyways, I, I should shut up and get you <laughs> to comment. <laughs> For the audience out there who don't know what RDF is, what is RDF? So RDF stands for Resource Description Framework, and RDF is a standard for representing data as a graph, and it's, an, it's a W3C standard. So basically, the way you think about HTML is a standard for representing documents, RDF is a standard for representing data, and metadata, and basically anything. It, 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 it's, it's a graph, it's a triple, and you can turn anything into triples, into, into what you call subject, predicate, and objects. It's just like a, a lowest common denominator. That's interesting. And then, so, so you have the knowledge graph on the web. And do you see knowledge graphs that prevalent within enterprises? Well, completely. So th- this is the thing. It's that it's just completely, it's hidden. Yeah. It, it, and people don't, don't, don't know about these things. So first of all, it, it, Google search is all done through, through a knowledge graph. Right. So whenever you get that knowledge panel on the side, like that's the knowledge, they've created a knowledge graph and they've, when you have a, you, you, you type in something has an intent, you match it to the graph and then it says, oh, you talk about Austin, right? You search for Austin, like here's Austin, the concept, which is the city, and then gives you a bunch of stuff that's related to it. Same, so all larger, all big tech companies use knowledge graphs to be able to go manage all their data and metadata and to use it for stuff like search and recommendations. So, so I think that that's what, that's uh, all the big tech uses this every day like whenever you so actually i was at uh one of the coolest thing i saw i learned when i was at, at the sigmod conference the database conference in june is that your iphone actually has a knowledge graph embedded in it like oh, there is a really? there is a graph database running on this stuff and the reason it's on your phone is because they're so focused on privacy like it, it has basically your personal knowledge graph uh, they don't use RDF exactly, right? The exact standard they kind of taken, they're taking the, the using all the great bits of it. It's also triples in a way. Um, and so when all the processing that they do to make any recommendations that says on your phone from your private data, all that happens on your phone, and they bring in stuff externally, and then they can actually run queries on your phone, and they, they actually have their own kind of DSL. Uh, just basically like a graph, a very kind of uh, less expressive graph query language that doesn't just take up a lot of compute on your phone. It literally is embedded in your pocket, most probably. I mean, I'm, that's iPhone. I'm sure it's in the Android and stuff. So it's literally all over the place. You don't know about it. Um, and I think, uh, yeah, so I think a lot of people like, oh, that stuff is like, oh, this is there. You just don't know about it. And just because you don't know about it, doesn't um, mean it's already having an impact. Kind of moving back to large language models. I mean, so ChatGPT just released a, a ChatGPT Enterprise was it last week. Um, if you're a small to medium business, what, what, what do you think, Juan, about, uh, I guess, small to medium companies using uh, these types of large language models for their enterprise? If you are not using generative AI large language models like GPT in your organization, uh, you are an idiot. 
Okay. <laughs> That's you, yeah. So I'll, I'll, I'll expand on that. But her, her, if if you are on the side of like, oh, uh, hallucinations, oh, risk and all that stuff is like, get over it. I mean, I'm not just saying just go start using it, but like you got to get over that stuff and figure out how to start using it now. Like you are, it, you're going to fail. Your organization is going to fail if they don't use it. Why? Because another organization who is your competitor is going to use it and they're going to beat you. They're going to beat you because these things make you so productive. Like, right, even even in our organization, data, we're like, it's almost kind of mandated that you have to go use it for anything. Like, any tasks that you do, the first thing you should be thinking about is, like, how could I use ChatGPT to help my, do my job? Like, all our engineers are using Copilot. They, they like, we're like, yeah, you should be using this stuff because it's just making you so productive. Like, one of our, 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 our lead engineers, like he said, the amount of code that I have written in the last six months does not compare with the amount of code I have been able to go write in years. Like it's the amount of productivity is ridiculous. So, so first thing is like, you have to get out of this headspace of, of being concerned about it. You got to figure out how to go get out of get, find the people to help you understand the light and be able to start using this. If you're not using it, you are setting yourself up for failure. Um, so, so, so that's kind of my, my first main, main point around this stuff. It's a, and, and it's, it's not a hype thing. It's not just a hype thing. Like there's plenty of studies that you can go see. Like, uh, actually there, there, there's three studies, uh, that I've been, I've analyzed one, one, there's a, a customer service study, I think from folks from Stanford, MIT did where they were looking at, um, they, so they gave two groups a chat. Uh, so one group of their like customer service, the people were responding on chats. The customer service one, it, I think it had like a 15% increase on the number of chats that they were able to go kind of address kind of per hour. Um, and then what, ha- what, what also happened is that somebody who was new to the organization from the customer service, they operated equivalently to somebody who had been working there for like six months. So upskilling was so fast. So that, mm-hmm. that, that's one. There's another one about like, um, there's a writing task one, I think. Um, and and this, is, this is like they gave a bunch of, college educated professionals to go a bunch of like writing tests and group would use ChatGPT, group who didn't use ChatGPT, and i think it was like a, a reduction of time like almost 40 percent to the same task to go do this and then what helped is like people who were not good at writing got they were better at writing to do this and then another interesting thing is that they changed how their time was spent so they spent more time editing which is which is a great indicator saying oh i wasn't just gonna like just let ChatGPT go Give right. you provide the testing answers like oh actually let me go proof free what i read and then prove that stuff and then i think github has done a bunch of studies around this stuff too saying i think it's like 50 percent faster when they've done like they i think they have one test about like uh go write a web server in javascript or something like that mm. and it was like a 50 percent increase of time uh, 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 uh decrease 50 percent of time to go write so basically there's all these productivity studies around that stuff so go figure out what are the opportunities that you can go off and, and go start uh, being yourself more productive? So any organization, I would like for every single business line, just figure out what are the tasks that you spend a lot of time on that are critical, right? That are important. It's like, well, how can I use ChatGPT to help me improve this? Is it right? You're doing sales outreach, cold emails. Like, can I use this to go generate emails faster for me? Like, I'm like that. <laughs> and then here's the other thing is that you probably already have some metrics on stuff. 
use those metrics and figure out how can I use ChatGPT, whatever to go, see if I can improve on that metric. Um, anyways, let's yeah. go use it. If you're not using it, you're being stupid. You mentioned the hallucination problem. What are some recommendations for smaller companies who maybe don't have the resources to hire a full uh, you know, data science team? How, how, how would you recommend they handle hallucinations? Yeah. Or deal with it? So, so first, so for, before there, I think the first thing is to, there's a, there are all the legal and privacy concerns. They're yeah. obviously well-founded. So get your legal and privacy teams engaged as fast as possible. Like this stuff is new to you. It's obviously going to be new to them. And if you do this stuff first and then you bring them later on, they're obviously going to say no. Right? So bring them on that journey from the beginning. Actually, I love I, I, it's fascinating how our legal department is using ChatGPT for a bunch of stuff too. Like, oh, interesting. Like they're, the ones who they're, they're the ones who realize, oh, shoot, I can look how they, I can improve a lot of this stuff, right? Mm -hmm. um, so then I, I think what you want to go do is like create, again, use the word committee or whatever, but like create a, a group, a diverse group of folks within your organization from legal, privacy, the business side, the tech folks, put them all together. And I think you all need to go brainstorm on what the do's and the don'ts, right? Mm. Obvious don'ts, don't put private, don't put customer data, privacy data in this stuff, right? Uh, there's things. So, and then you need to start writing them down. Do like, this is where you got to do your policies and start training people. It's like, here's an example where you should not do. Here's an example you should do. And what you want is to actually oh, create this community where people can actually start asking questions. Because if people don't have a place to go ask questions, they're not going to go ask them. So have a place where you can go ask it and, and, and say like, oh, so I'm considering using it for this thing. And then saying, yeah, that, that's actually great. Or no, glad you said that. No. And then you actually share this stuff or, oh, actually, we haven't even thought about that. That's great. So th this is again, this is all being honest and no BS. We're all figuring out this shit as we go, right? I think it, then the important thing is with like at least ChatGPT with the enterprise one is that um, you can tell it not to train on your data. That's great, right? Uh, actually, if you use ChatGPT+, Plus, one thing, a clever thing, but a very annoying thing that GPT has done is that uh, you, if you tell it to not train on, your, on the data that you're sending to it, you lose all the history. So you can't keep track of the history of the stuff you're doing. Um, so, anyways, so I think it's just, it's, it's, this is a people thing. So just create that group, mm -hmm. a community, and, and have people start asking questions around that. Uh, part of it is like, I think you should also define what you consider proprietary, what you consider yeah. at risk, and then you then you figure out your risk profiles. Like, oh, I'm shipping my code to this thing. I'm like, yeah, what's the risk that can happen about that? Define, and then you like outweigh the risk and the benefit, right? <laughs> Obviously, if you go out to a lawyer, the legal team, they're always going to say everything's risk. So they basically say no, yeah. right? Then, so again, <laughs> um, and uh, other things that come like, Consider what to do with the outputs. So mm. depending on this and the space. So if you're using images, like using Midjourney or this Dali that generates images, can I use that image as is? Probably, I don't know. Right? I don't know. There's copyright stuff. Maybe you have, you're, you're going to be exposed to more things. So you probably won't use that, but you can probably use that as a source of inspiration. Oh, that's a great idea. Well, let me go do that. So again, it's helping me get from zero to a hundred faster right um uh, and, and and then just acknowledge that there's going to be new problems of course there's going to be new questions about privacy and copyright like let's just talk about them just embrace these new things and 
And finally, this shit's moving so fast. I mean, this is like we all take our smartphones for granted. This is an iPhone 14. Yep. iPhone, the first one came out 15 years ago. Like this shit's going to evolve. Like the web was created in 89. It's going up for 30 years. We now take so much for granted. This is going to get evolving. And then figure out, are you going to be... Are you going to be the folks who are going to be an innovator, right? Or early adopter of the stuff or, or laggard? And if you decide to be a laggard, well, guess what? Probably you're going to be at risk uh, and your competitors are going to come up and beat you. Yep. So what do you think this does to data teams then, right? I think there's, you know, we, we kind of exist in the, uh, the LinkedIn uh, data filter bubble, so to speak. Uh, I, I see lots of uh, ideas, uh, but I'm curious, what, what do you think? What do you, what do you think happens? Well, I, 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 in, you, you have to think about how to go use this for, for, for your productivity. What, what, are, what are the tasks that you're trying to go do? So um, like, here's an interest. Here's a very simple one. Go send the schema information. Literally, put it, it could be the SQL DDL, the create table F statement, um, saying, Tell me where there could be possible where there could be PII. All you said it was the schema information. It's going to send it. These things have the following could could probably have the following PII. How much time are you sending up? Oh, we have concern about PII. We go do these things, and we got this data is moving this flow. It's like, do you just test that thing? And it's, and it, all you sent it was this, the the schema, the, the table, and the column names. Maybe that maybe it's so much productive, right? I mean, I think it's just like. Uh, it's, I, it's all about productivity and be more efficient. So just figure out what is the task that you have. Go figure out how it can t- find ways of, of seeing it can make you more productive. Now, obviously, you're not going to go just take that thing for granted. You're going to have to go <laughs> process that output and do things, right? Now, going back to the other part of like creating the transforms and like this is where the context comes in. I think that in that part, it's su- it, 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 it can be super helpful for it. Like, you. Now it won't get the right answer, but it'll take me steps towards it. Like define me schemas, define me, define me a, a relational model as a, 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 a semantic layer, a business glossary for this topic. Well, here you go. Well, probably got eighty percent right. Fuck if it got fifty. Heck if it got twenty percent right, mm-hmm. <laughs> just save you a bunch of time, right? Uh, so it's all about t- helping you more productive. So AI is not going to take your job away. Another person using AI, that person's going to take your job away. Mm. Yeah, I, mean, I think part of me wonders if this is a silver bullet the industry's needed for a while. You know, as, as I talked about earlier, I think that um, you know, getting value from BI is still very elusive for a lot of companies, and maybe we've been going about it the wrong way for all these years. I tend to think that that might be the case. Uh, if you find yourself repeating the same problems over and over, um, that's, you know, so he, that's he, he, here, so. So we continue like I, I truly believe that this we, we need to have this paradigm shift. I call always like a shift from a the data first world to the knowledge first world from just yeah. from just a technical looking at the looking at the data world from a technical uh, perspective for to a social technical perspective. So here I ask everybody, everybody who's listening, go get the top questions people are asking. You already have a BI tool. You probably should be able to go get those questions right now. Li- now go to ChatGPT. And saying, um, here are the top 10 questions that are being asked in my BI tool. Suggest 
uh, data model, a semantic layer of a that would map to this these questions. It's going to generate something there. Mm -hmm. What you think that's pretty valuable? Aren't people already doing this type of stuff? So then you actually get now you get to spend time talking to people, yeah. understanding what questions you're trying to ask, and then you tell ChatGPT just create the schema for me. It's probably going to do a pretty damn good job about that stuff. Well, I played right? with it. Now you're not going to use. Job. It does a great job. I know. It yeah. doesn't mean exactly. That, that's how it's making you super productive around this stuff. So, like, I've been uh, literally working on like creating mappings and transformations. Like, here's this transformation. Like, uh, this, this here is a following ontology or, or target scheme or semantic layer business class you have. Right here, are the here are here are the following um, source schemas that I have. The following are the mappings. Claim claim underscore number underscore this is actually claim number. This just write it in English. Turn that into JSON, into YAML, into SQL, into or what like whatever you want. It'll turn it into it. You just wrote it in English. You don't have to go code it anymore. Yeah. <laughs> so so it's just going to turn all these people like just all you know, data engineers and they, they, like everybody just working with data is just going to make you more productive. Just go use that. Now, the, the, making your job now, the other thing is like, you, if you're going to go train these models and all that stuff with your data, then of course you need to go have good quality data and all that stuff. I mean, that, that's not going away. No, it's not going away. In fact, I, I think that it's going to be more important than ever, right? It's, I, the, the other thing I've been ranting about in my uh, talks lately is like, all the attention right now is on AI and on data. And people are figuring out data quality, for example, and all this stuff we've been harping on for ages. Hey, that's actually pretty important. And so my, my question to the audience is always, well, if, if we're not going to get it right this time, if we're not going to take this, this opportunity seriously, like when the hell are we going to do it? Like this is, if there ever was a time when we want to take this seriously, it's now. <laughs> like, I don't know what we're waiting for. 100%. If you, want, if you want to be ready for AI, this is the moment to get your, your data house in order. And, and, and you need a data catalog. And I'm not just saying that because I work for a data catalog company. It's like, you just, that's the way how you get your stuff yeah. in order. It's like, you need to be able to categorize it, what data you have and, and clean it up. So it's like, let, let's metadata manage. We'll be able to go manage all that stuff, go clean that up. Mm -hmm. And then uh, that's where you manage that. And I'll also argue, and this is not, again, not a vendor thing. This is my 15 years, my entire career on this. Yeah. It should be a knowledge graph. Because yeah. you're just combining all this stuff. It's connecting all these things together. You're bringing your knowledge, your data, and your metadata all together. It's connections. That's why it should be a knowledge graph. And I'm saying this, I mean, very like, I'm not saying this because I work for a vendor like this. This is my entire career that I've been betting on. Oh, no, you, you've, you've, you've done, a, I think, a terrific job convincing me of the power of knowledge graphs. You know, I, I don't think I've ever met somebody as passionate about you as, or about this topic <laughs> as you. So it's, and we know each other for, for a while. So it's, it's, um, yeah, so I, I'm I'm a I'm a convert for sure, right? It's uh, it just makes a hell of a lot of sense. I mean, once you get your data house in order, obviously, then you can create the graph off of it. I think this it's the, and it's interesting. I think the graph is going to have more of its time of day, like you say. It's been sort of um, hidden in the shadows, but you, you talk to a lot of data professionals, right? And that's I think the context that they view the world through is uh, well, I got my data warehouse, I got my my data pipelines, and so forth. But now it's uh, you know, things are going to be changing a lot and. And evolution is a good thing. Like I said, I, I can't, I can't think that what we've been doing for the past you know, 30, 40 years is, is what's going to get us to the next level. Perhaps it is a, a, a complete paradigm change that we need, which paradigm changes do occur. That's how the world evolves. So, you know. 
If we can't, if we keep doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results, that's Einstein's definition of insanity. Yep. And we have been driving ourselves insane. Uh, and 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 the paradigm shift for me is not just a, is not AI LLMs. That's the paradigm shift should be from a technical perspective or tech, uh, looking yeah. at data from a technical phenomena to a social technical phenomena. Yep. Working on the social side, that's been expensive. It's annoying because you have to go talk to people, but I think the large language models will accelerate that because it's going to make us more efficient to go do that. That's why I'm super excited. Yeah. And then also the, 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 the cons of the knowledge graphs, sorry, the cons of the large language models are the pros of the knowledge graphs. Yep. And the cons of the knowledge graph are the pros of, of the large language models. So, so I think large language models are there, has general knowledge and is there for natural language dealing with natural language, which is what knowledge graphs can't do. The, the, what large language models can't do is that they don't have the context of your organization. They don't have explainability. The large knowledge graph represents the context and that context is used for explainability. So it's like a perfect match in heaven. <clears throat> yeah, let me pull up this paper here real quick. I have it on my, uh, my iPad. I like to read when I'm a uh, biking, but there's a, um, yeah, let's there's see. many things yeah. right now there's coming a lot of stuff. On this. so the one that the one that stood out to me was the um what is it unifying large language models and knowledge graphs a roadmap this came out yep a, a couple of years ago, yeah but good 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 paper though and i think there's been a have, lot you, have you seen like th those, those folks like have a an awesome github repository with like so many papers like all the images that they have those figures i'm reusing those figures like they've oh, really they've really kind of distilled this so nicely on how you, you either augment your large language model with the knowledge graph or your large language model is augmented with the knowledge graph and eventually you do both, right? Yeah. So, so again, I have a, a knowledge graph. I want to in, improve my knowledge graph. You can use a large language model to go do that stuff, right? Mm -hmm. Or I have my large language model. I want to make this better. Well, you use a knowledge graph and you, and you fuse it. Now, how you go do that, that that's, the, that's the fun engineering and science, right? Is it yep. prompt engineering? Is it embedding? Like, yeah, that's, let's go figure that out. But it's, it's like these two things, are like we have it insane internally. It's like peanut butter and chocolate. They'll go perfectly mm. together. That's awesome. Well, cool, man. It's been uh, good chatting with you. Um, I, I think we'll be um, hanging out. Uh, it's recorded early September. I think we'll be, we'll see each other in two weeks. We in uh, two London. weeks. I will be there in London. You give me a talk. I'm excited. Uh, I'm going to be on Chris Tabs uh, here on his meetup. I'm going to be on the one of the panels are we on the same panel i can't remember no i think you're you're on a panel on on generative ai i'm going to be on a panel earlier before that one oh. um like contracts and stuff fun. oh fun okay but well i'll, I'll be I, I, i'll be i'm giving a t the the alan turing institute has a knowledge graph interest group that's right so on monday on monday on the same week of of big data london so it's monday the 18th i think so I'm giving a talk. It's a meetup. It's open to anybody. So you can I might show up to that, that up. actually. I'm going to be there uh, in town. So yeah. see if I can break away from my uh, kids and uh, get that going. That's pretty cool, though. Alan Turing, and Sue, that's no joke. So. so that will be a fun thing. So, so yeah, I'll be around all that week. And actually, the week before, I'm going to be in London, too. I'm like, I'll be in Amsterdam September 11th to the 14th, and I'll be in London. So... When do you arrive? That weekend, I'm going to be there. We should do something. For um, yeah, I get there that weekend too. Yeah, so I'm bringing my uh, my wife and kids along. So uh, show them around, do all the uh, fun touristy stuff. But um, yeah, it'd be great to catch up. Uh, always like talking to you. And I don't know, it's uh, always fun to hang out and catch up. So 
but uh likewise yeah yeah well cool anyway uh yeah thanks for thanks for the fun chat as always um sure it's not the last time we'll be on each other's podcast so looking forward to it joe yep another one yes yes thank you so much appreciate it man take care buddy have a good one bye